So let's talk about owning our regrets. Titus just preached a very good lesson about shame. You remember that one? Shame, the great motivator, he called it. And three things he made points about. All shame is a result of sin. And we were not made to hold on to our shame, but to let it go. And finally, shame turns us towards God. Great lesson. I'm talking about regrets this morning. Very similar. I thought, wow, that was a great lesson. Maybe I could cabbage on to that idea and talk about regrets. Good introduction and, and more, Titus. You here? Oh, there he is. Yeah, that's the guy with all the kids. That's <laughs> Romans 8.28. Are you familiar with that? If you're not, look it up. Because it's, it's worthy of your time. It's worthy of your, your remembering what it says and taking courage in what it says. This is what Paul writes to the church at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God calls us what things? All things to work together for good. Now, of course, the good things work together for our good. We would like to believe that. But the whole point of this is that God calls us even bad things, things we would normally say are bad, to work together for our good. I don't need to see a show of hands, but do any of you have any regrets about past behaviors? Do any of you have regrets about things you have said that you wished you hadn't? Do any of you have regrets about times you wished you had stood up for what was right and you failed to stand up for what was right? If you don't have regrets, you're not thinking. We all have regrets. What do we do with that? What do we do with our regrets? Well, one of the things we need to do is own those regrets. Face them. That's the only way to deal with regrets is owning them. And this passage is telling us, it's encouraging us, even the things in your life that you regret, God will cause to work together for good. Because this is not a verse about good things in your life. This is a verse about the things you've done that you just, when you think about it, you go, oh, you ever do that? And I don't know where they come from sometimes, these memories. I'll just be driving down the road, having a great day. Got the radio on, music, sky's out, sky's out, sky's always out. (laughs) Sky's blue, sun's out, birds are singing too. I can't hear them for the radio, but they're out there. And then some thought comes in, some memory of something I've done or said in the past and I just cringe, thinking, oh, how could I have done that? How could I have said that? And I know you do the same thing because you have this thing that God has given you. It's a great gift. It's called a conscience. And our conscience lets us know about things we do that we shouldn't do. And it compels us to do good that we know we should do. That's what our conscience does. And it's a great gift from God. And I think about the 51st Psalm. The 51st Psalm, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I hope you are. But to me, it's one of the most beautiful Psalms in all of the Psalms. Most beautiful text in all all the scripture. But what's the 51st Psalm all about? 
What does the 51st Psalm result from but David's sin with Bathsheba? And I won't go into all the gory details, but you, you may be familiar with that story. He saw a woman who was a married woman, and he already had seven wives and more. And he saw her, and he wanted her, so he sent and brought her to himself. She came to be with child by him. And he lied about that. He tried to get her then husband to believe that it was his child by bringing him in to stay with his wife. And he was such a faithful, loyal soldier, he wouldn't even go into his wife while he was in. How can I go see my wife when my buddies are out in the field suffering the hardships of battle? So he didn't do that. So David's lie didn't work out. His deceit didn't work out. So what's he do but have the guy killed, murdered him, and it implicates some of his staff in the murder of a good, faithful soldier And then David's confronted with his sin. And what's he do when he's confronted with his sin? Does he deny it? He doesn't deny it. Does he play it off? Does he excuse himself? What's he do? He owns it. He owns it. And then he writes this psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. That out of my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Is your sin ever before you? If you're old enough to drive, maybe you've driven a car, maybe it's your car, and it's out of alignment. You know what happens when your car is out of alignment? You want to hold the steering wheel like this, but you've got to hold the steering wheel like this because it's pulling to one side or maybe it's pulling to that side. And you think, oh, this road's crooked. No, the road's not crooked. Your car's out of alignment. So you have to constantly be pulling back over the other direction to keep your car straight. That's what sin can do to us. Keep pulling us away from what's right. But if we deal with sin like David is dealing with sin, we can get aligned again. We can get straightened back out. And so you can, you can steer with your knees. Oh, I shouldn't say that from the pulpit because teenagers are going to try that. I didn't know I could steer with my knees. Preacher said so. No. It's, it's an example that I shouldn't have used. <laughs> but that's what happens when your car's aligned. It'll, it'll just go down the road so easily, so nicely. And when you do need to make a correction, you just reach up. And, and some of us are old enough to remember the days before power steering. When no matter how well a car your, line, your car was aligned, you had to wrestle with it anyway. I had one, the steering, the worm gear in the steering box was out. And so you, no matter, going down the road straight, you had to do this all the time. Back and forth. Anyway, that's another thing. But, but this, is what, this is what sin does. Pulls us out of the way. Not your sin, my sin pulls me out of the way. Your sin pulls you out of the way. And God is always trying to bring us back. To own our sin, own our regret in such a way that we can get realigned and do the right thing. Now in the second, or the the 12th chapter of the second Samuel, I'm still not saying that right, 12th chapter of second Samuel, when David is confronted with his sin, this is what Nathan tells him when David repents, or as David is, is repenting. It's just one verse, but I, I like to read it because what it says is so great. Chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, this is when Nathan said, you're the man that's done all this stuff. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, what did he say? He said, the Lord has taken away your sin. Wow, 
All that stuff. The adultery, the lying, the murder. God took it away. David would write in another psalm. God has removed our sins from us. Do you remember how far he said? As far as east is from west. How far is east from west? We're not even talking about California and New York. This goes farther than that. East going from west never ends. And David says that's how far God has removed our sin from us. Even adultery, even lying, even murder, God covers sin with his son's blood. So own your regrets. Don't beat yourself up over those things that you've done wrong, but let them work in your life to bring about something good. That's what the 51st Psalm is. It's something good. It's a blessing to us out of David's sin, his evil, his godlessness. And God has kept his promise in Romans 8, 28. He's turned that into something wonderful. And we read it and we are encouraged by it. In the days, in the days of Jeremiah... I don't know if you've ever made the connection between the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, for example, and Ezra and Nehemiah. The prophets God sent to Israel to try to turn them back. They were lost in sin, in idolatry, in selfishness, in evil. And God was trying to turn them back through his prophets. And they didn't turn back. And so God sent them into captivity for how long? Sent them into captivity for 70 years. They were carried off into Babylon. Well, after that 70 years, they came back and they came back. And that's what Nehemiah and Ezra are all about. are all about the return of God's people to Jerusalem, which is unheard of for a nation to be carried away and then to be sent back by another nation. Not a Hebrew nation, not a Jewish nation. But a pagan heathen nation sent back to rebuild their city and reclaim their land. That's what Nehemiah and Ezra are all about. But it started with the sin of the Jewish people. And if you look at Jeremiah chapter 3, this is what we read here about God's message to the Jews. This is, this is Jeremiah chapter 6. Did I say chapter, what did I say? Jeremiah chapter 6. I said chapter 3 because that's, that's where this idea starts about shame. Jeremiah is going to talk about shame. This is one of the themes in Jeremiah is shame. Jeremiah says this in chapter 6. Jeremiah 6 starting at verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become... A reproach to them. They have no delight in it. But I'm full of the wrath of the Lord. I'm weary with holding it in. Pour it out on the children in the street. And on the gathering of young men together. For both husband and wife shall be taken. The aged and the very old. Their houses shall be turned over to others. Their fields and their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against this in the inhabitants of this land. Declares the Lord. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. 
And then he continues in verse 15. Woe, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall at the time I will punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Did they know how to be ashamed? What did Jeremiah say? Or really, what did God say through Jeremiah? He said, they don't even know how to be ashamed. Does that sound relatable to today? Our culture, our society, to so much of what's going on? Don't even know how to be ashamed. Now let me ask, you think about it. What happens to your face when you become ashamed? What happens at that moment? Now, now this is from God. This is the way God made us. Your face flushes, doesn't it? What's that mean when your face flushes? Well, it means the blood rushes up to your face and it gets red. And you can tell when somebody's embarrassed. You can tell when they're ashamed, if they're thinking right, because their face will get that redness to it. How does it feel on your face? It's hot. It burns. And I got to wonder, there's no scripture that says this, but I got to wonder if God doesn't, doesn't make us like that so that when we're ashamed over the things we ought to be ashamed for, our face flushes and we feel just a little bit of the heat of hell right there in our face. And it's right there for everyone to see. You can't hide it. Not if you know how to be ashamed. But Jeremiah has been sent to talk to God's people who have gotten to the point in their evil where they don't even know how to be ashamed anymore. They don't know they're supposed to be embarrassed about this. And so God sends the Babylonians. And they're taken away into captivity. And it was awful. It was brutal. Hooks in their noses. Put that hook in there and pull you along. We're going to Babylon. How far is Babylon? It's a long way. And you're walking. And we're dragging you with a hook in your nose. It was awful. What people suffered because of their evil. But God told them, you go to Babylon. You buy property when you, when you get to the point where you can do that. You set up a house. You have a garden. You, you live as they will allow you to live. Because I'm bringing you back in 70 years. And that's what Nehemiah and Ezra were all about. And I want us to read just a little bit. From Nehemiah, because one of the things Nehemiah does is he confesses the sin of the people. Now, he's not confessing necessarily his own sin, but he knows he's, he's one of those people who do that. And this is a, a constant theme in Nehemiah's writings that he confesses the sin of the people. And you read about it, even though they're going back and it's a great time. In chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 11... In Nehemiah, we read that he's, he's finding out what the city of Jerusalem is like, what's happening there. And he's heartbroken over this. And so he cries out to God. And in the process of crying out to God and praying to God, he confesses the sin of the people. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And what happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year that I was in Susa, the capital, and then Hanani, one of the brothers, and some of them came from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, 
The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Remember all this that happened 70 years before. And he's hearing about the condition of the city now. He said, I beseech you, O Lord God, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, if you return and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell." They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name, and make your servant successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. And he was a cupbearer to the king. And this is when Nehemiah goes to the king, and he's given permission to go back and given money to go back, to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But what does he do first? He confesses the sin of the people. Have you ever thought that maybe we ought to do that as a church? Go to God on behalf of our nation. Talk to God about the things that are going on in our country. And and instead of simply complaining about everything that's happening, say, Lord, I'm sorry about all this. These are my fellow Americans who are doing this. Our culture has come to this point where these are the kinds of things that are happening and these are the kinds of things that are being said. And Lord, I'm sorry. This is not why you allowed this nation to be born and brought into its place. This is not why you've prospered us to do these kinds of things. You ever thought about praying that kind of a prayer and talking to God about that thing? And I know it is the way with politics. You ever look at the field of people who were up for office and go, is this the best we can do? <laughs> yeah. Nebuchadnezzar, just talking about Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one who took the, the, the Judeans off into captivity. God said... Through Nebuchadnezzar, through his angel that he sent to him, he raises up nations and he puts over them the basest of men. And that's to show that God is the one who is in charge. It's always been that way and it'll always be that way. So Nehemiah was owning the sins of his people. We can do the same. We have regrets about a lot of things, but we can face them. You remember when Isaiah went before the Lord? Isaiah chapter 6. What what did Isaiah say when he found himself before God? He was in a vision and he's before God. What's the first thing Isaiah says? Woe is me. Why did he say woe is me? Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I do what? I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That is a man with his head on right. You're in the presence of God and the first thing you think about is your unworthiness to be in the presence of God. What did God do for Isaiah? You can read about it, Isaiah chapter 6. There was a a bunch of hot coals on an altar there before God. 
And he had one of those angels take some tongs and pick up a coal and touch Isaiah's lips with it. Now that sounds, oh my, that's a horrible thing. No, it didn't hurt him at all. What did it do? Cleansed him. And what did Isaiah say after that? What's Isaiah famous for saying? Here am I, send me. God says, who am I going to send? Now that Isaiah has recognized his sin and has regret over that and has dealt with that, God says, I'm sending you to tell these people what for. Tell them to come back to me. That's what happened with Isaiah. And then in Luke 18, Jesus is telling a parable about self-righteousness. And he gives this example about these two guys who go up to the temple to pray. By the way, we're talking about what Luke wrote, about the words of Jesus. Did you read that article that our Luke wrote about shame? Talking about when he was five years old, swiped his dad's autographed baseball so he and Matt could play ball. Oh, you need to read that article. That's a good one. That's, that's something good that came out of something bad. I think Romans 8, 28 is true. Good article, bro, wherever you're sitting this morning. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. And if I was Luke, I might have been tempted to write in there in addition, God, you're lucky to have me. Because there are people who think like that. Well, I didn't want to come this morning, Lord, but you're lucky I showed up. Right, yeah. Then Jesus says in verse 13, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What did Jesus say about that? Jesus said, that's the one who went away justified. What did that man do? He goes to the temple, obviously to be in the presence of God, but he won't even come close. He stands afar off because he recognizes his sinfulness. That's what God wants us to do. That's all he wants us to do. Recognize that and come before him with confession. That's what Nehemiah did. He confessed the sins of the people in his own. That's what this man's doing, and he goes the way justified. That's what... God had John, the apostle, to write in 1 John chapter 1. That if we confess our sins, God is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. If we own our regrets, let our regrets work for us. When you think about those things that just make you cringe, that you've done in the past or said in the past, you ever thank God that you're not that same person today? Thank God that you've learned from that stuff. And I I don't like that it's there, but nothing's going to change the fact that it's there. But I can use that to motivate me to be a little more godly as the days go on. So own your regrets. Think about those things in ways that will help you do better. God has forgiven you. He's removed your sins if you're in Christ as far as east is from west. The law has shown us our sin, but God through his son Jesus Christ has shown us grace and shed grace on us. And we are forgiven today. We can regret what we've done, but we can thank God in our forgiveness. That's what David was doing in the 51st Psalm. And here's how Romans 8.28 works, even for God, 
Our sin is a bad thing for God. But when he forgives our sin, how does that make him look? Glorious. It's his glory. When Paul wrote Romans, he started out in the, in the first chapter, verses 16 and 17, saying, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is declared. What does that mean? Well, the gospel is all about Jesus dying on the cross for our sin. You see, if God had not paid for our sin, he would not be righteous. But he paid for our sin. And so when you own up to your sin and you give it to God and he forgives it, you're doing exactly what he needs you to do to bring him glory and honor because that's where the glory and honor is. It's in his forgiveness. And you're part of it by virtue of who you are. And when I think about those two guys going up before God at the temple, I hit myself on the chest. What I ought to be thinking is, well, who am I to think that I shouldn't have sin? Who am I to think that I'm any different than anybody else? I'm going to have my sin. You're going to have yours. I want to regret mine in such a way that I use it for good from here on out. How about you? That's what we need to do. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement and invitation. If you've got regrets that aren't covered by the blood of Christ, I want to talk to you this morning. If you need to be baptized into Christ so that his blood will cover you, if you need the prayers of this congregation, bring your regrets to God as we stand and sing.